sorry about my voice. It's really bad. I've been cheering for the Atlanta Braves far too much. Hopefully it's listenable. Otherwise, Art, you could just record so it. So Atlanta Braves, they, they play hockey? Is that right? Oh, man. Oh, ouch. <laughs> Have you watched any baseball at all? <laughs> no no playoff baseball whatsoever? <laughs> Not even playoff baseball? Before we start this episode, we want to thank a few fans who recently joined our Patreon community. Harry Newell and Micah Floyd started giving to Big Biology last month. Thank you so much for supporting the show. You know, Patreon is really an important way for us to pay for the production of the podcast. So if you like Big Biology, please go to patreon.com slash bigbio and become a patron. When you join Patreon, you get access to a community of Big Biology fans and you get access to all sorts of special perks. For example, patrons get to submit questions for guests and sometimes get them answered by the guest on an episode. We also publish show notes for patrons for each episode. These notes have links to the papers and books we talk about during the interview and lots more. You'll also get audio extras as a patron. This season, we started publishing mini interviews with our guests about their lives outside of science. Current patrons are already listening to those interviews on our Patreon page. On October 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're hosting a live video chat for our patrons. The live stream will be available only to patrons, but we're asking all of our listeners to submit questions for us. We'll answer those questions during the live stream and release the Q&A portion of the live stream as a bonus episode later this year. Submit your questions to info at bigbiology.org. Become a part of our Big Biology community. Go to patreon.com slash bigbio and sign up to make a monthly contribution to the podcast. Thanks for supporting the show. Here's the latest episode. Every fall, millions of monarch butterflies migrate to Mexico from the northern U.S. and Canada to escape the freezing winter temperatures. In central Mexico, they congregate in high-latitude fir forests. In some years, they form thick carpets that nearly cover the trees. The tree branches can bend under their collective weight. And then in the spring, the adults that have overwintered in Mexico start the long journey back north. On their way north, females lay eggs only on milkweed plants, and the caterpillars that hatch from those eggs eat nothing but milkweed, which is quite a trick. Milkweed is poisonous to most animals, but monarchs have evolved crazy physiological mechanisms and even behavioral strategies that allow them to tolerate it. They even concentrate milkweed toxins in their wings, which defends them from predators like birds and lizards. The monarchs migrate north, but not just in one shot. It takes several generations for them to reach southern Canada. At that point, the great-grandkids of the first group start the 4,000-kilometer trip back to Mexico. The fact that this little insect can migrate thousands of miles is truly astonishing. But since the early 1990s, the number of monarchs that has made it to Mexico each year has been declining. The years between 2010 and 2014 were some of the worst, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service considered listing monarchs under the Endangered Species Act. Since then, the populations have rebounded a bit. Our guest today is Anurag Agrawal from Cornell University. Anurag is the author of a new book called Monarchs and Milkweed, A Migrating Butterfly, a Poisonous Plant, and Their Remarkable Story of Coevolution. Anurag says that monarchs aren't likely to disappear anytime soon, but he sees their decline as an important ecological indicator that might be telling us about bigger problems. The more nuanced discussion is uh, about what's wrong with the annual migratory cycle and uh, what can be done about that. And the real question is, is what are they telling us about the environmental health of our continent? Um, they're, I mean, they're, they're wonderful because they're migrators and they taste their way as they go from Canada to Mexico. The fact that they're declining is, is you know, shouting out, hey, um, we're... Something's our, going on continent-wide. Some, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, 
But those are tougher questions because there's not, you can't um, plant a garden and fix that. And monarchs are also teaching us a lot about evolution. Recently, a group of scientists, including Anurag, published a paper in Nature describing how they use CRISPR to learn how monarchs evolved to eat and sequester milkweed toxins. The group discovered that three simple genetic changes gave monarchs the ability to cope with the toxins. Then they tested the importance of these genes by using CRISPR to edit those genes in fruit flies. These edited flies were able to eat pure powdered milkweed in their diets. On this episode, we talk with Anurag about the amazing monarch butterfly, what citizen scientists are doing to protect it, and how his new collaboration shows that simple genetic changes can sometimes lead to major evolutionary innovations. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. This is Big Biology. So, Marty, do you want to start and ask the Patreon question? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, Anurag, we um, look for support from our listeners, and we have, if you've heard of Patreon, it's just this you know sort of website where people make donations monthly, yes. and we ask our patrons to give us questions to pass on to you guys. Yeah. So, um, Sarah Hall asks, what are some of the most extreme examples of plants fighting off herbivores? Yeah, I thought about that question over the last you know day or two, and... Um, I came up with this plant. It's a uh, Texas bull nettle. I happened to be, I was in Texas in the hill country a couple of years ago, and I came across this plant. It's in the, the U4BACE. It's the Spurge family. And um, it's just, it's covered in these um, prickles. They're, it's like being touched by shards of glass. Like when you kind of, you're a little attracted to it because they're these sharp uh, glistening structures on it. And, you, and it's just like it shreds your fingers. <laughs> Um, Hmm. And so I remember kind of getting close to it and sort of thinking, okay, I'm interested in this and kind of hurt my fingers. And then I cut a leaf off with my pocket knife and it bled all of this uh, latex, which is something that it shares with milkweed, which we'll talk about later. Um, But Hmm. that's stuff that's pretty nasty and hard to deal with. And and then I was looking it up and it's full of alkaloids and other compounds that are toxic. And so I'm sure there's many more toxic or – Defended plants out there, but I just thought this thing was unbelievable. Sounds, um, Texas sounds bull nettle. like a plant from hell. <laughs> so, yeah, so. well, it's got other names that I won't mention you know, on air. But <laughs> so, so what? What does eat it? Are there insects on it? I, you know, when I saw it, I don't know what eats it. Um, but one of the things that I, I was just doing a little bit of reading about it last night, and it just it, it's, it's classic for plants and defended plants. Um, so it's definitely been studied for its toxicity. Um, and then you find out oh, it has some medicinal properties and it's been used by native peoples to cure this and that. And then you read more about it and um, its nutritive value is like equivalent to that of spinach. And if you boil the heck out of it, uh, it's actually eaten by some people. And, and I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting paradox, right? It's like the most defended plant I came up with running into it. And then it's and yet it, it makes it's a nice salad it's a if you food do it right. Huh? Yeah. Ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So I don't know that was one of them that kind of um, that I, I remember just running into thinking you are poisonous. I think we have a giant smorgasbord of uh, toxic things we could think about, um, but we want to spend the most of the day talking about mm-hmm. monarchs. Um, and you know I think monarchs are an iconic species in part, and, and they sort of occupy a large part of the public attention because people know about their crazy yearly cycle. But just just so we're all on the same page, can you describe that that yearly cycle? 
Absolutely. Um, so the first thing to kind of think about is that it's a typically a four-generation cycle. So to make the circle from Mexico through the U.S., uh, northern, southern Canada, and then back to Mexico, individuals don't make that journey, but um, uh, that happens over four generations. Um, so if we start in January, at the beginning of every year, the, the monarchs are overwintering in Mexico at these... Um, these 12 mountain types, 12 mountain tops, uh, about 10,000 feet in central Mexico in the state of Michoacan. And come late February, early March, they fly to over the border into the Texas and the Gulf states. And at that point, um, the butterflies will lay eggs and more or less die. Uh, and those butterflies ha are eight months old. They're not, uh, they're not fresh at that point. They are, their wings are tattered. And we'll get back to how, why, what, they, um, ha what they did for the last eight months. But starting in January, they, um, they're in Mexico. And by March, late March, they end up flying 800 miles or so into Texas, lay eggs on milkweed plants that are just coming up and, and, and die. Their eggs then hatch in four days. They turn into caterpillars. They turn into chrysalids. They turn into adult monarchs in the Gulf states. Uh, they'll mate there, and then they'll move north into the Midwest and east of the Appalachians, uh, the northeast. From there, there's, there's two or three more generations. They do a little bit of staying in the Midwest and the northeast where they are, but also moving further north um, through the summer. And... Um, the bulk of their uh, eating milkweed and going from egg to caterpillar to adult really happens between March and August. Um, the last generation, which was, let's say, a caterpillar in August, uh, could be in Michigan, it could be in southern Ontario, um, will emerge from its chrysalis uh, in September, early October at the latest, and those insects are in what we call reproductive diapause. They don't actually uh, mate. They don't um, mature the reproductive organs. They are their, their, their size and their musculature is different than the last few generations. They've taken environmental cues from the temperature and day length and other things. And they keep their organs unmatured, their reproductive organs unmatured. They start orienting south. And they fly the three to... 5,000 kilometers to those overwintering sites in Mexico. Um, so that happens basically, we're, we're speaking now early October, that you know happens September 15th to October 15th where they start the migration. So they're going right now. Yeah. They're going right now. Um, they get to the sites around Thanksgiving. There's the Day of the Dead celebration in, um, in Mexico where the butterflies, in fact, are part of that celebration representing... Um, uh, friends and loved ones that are returning, that, that have passed away, but are returning. And um, yeah, so there, I mean, we can talk about this yeah. later or, or not at all, but um, there's a whole eight-month generation where the the egg to egg is, you know, September to February. They fly all the way. They wait for four months in Mexico. They fly back. Um, and then the next three generations really live just about a month or five weeks each. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, that's just so amazing. And hmm. there's... There's so many aspects of biology to cover there. Um, let's, let's, yeah, I mean, we could, we could spend the next 10 hours talking about this, but let, let's not. Um, so yeah. 
I guess my first question is about um, how, how does such a small thing migrate so far? And maybe let's start yeah. with energetics and move on to navigation. So, so how do they have the energy to do that? That's a great question. I think a physiologist um, did the calculation uh, early 80s that if monarchs were to use powered flight, um, they would exhaust all of their energy like in 11 hours. And they're taking two months to make this um, to make this flight. So they are, you know, like some of our migratory birds using thermals. So they're going up to a kilometer up in the air, and then they're gliding. Um, hmm. And they're certainly drinking a ton of nectar, uh, especially eating each, along the way, yeah. eating along the way each afternoon. Um, but they are not kind of using powered flapping flight to get those thousands of kilometers. Hmm. And, and and do they time their movements with like uh, southerly winds? So you know, wait wait for storms or fronts that come through that can blow them to the south. Absolutely. Oh. So um, they only fly during the day. So that's part of the just butterfly biology. Um, at night, they're going to be roosting on trees along the way, and on super cloudy, cold, rainy, or windy in the wrong direction days, they'll basically stay put mm -hmm. on the southern migration. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, we sort of think that they kind of have to leave by um, mid-September, at least in southern Ontario, to make the whole journey. Because as weather starts to get uh, more and more difficult, um, they may not make it unless they leave yeah, on right, the earlier right. side. And then on, on the navigation side, uh, I know there's been a lot of biology about, about that, and it just blows my mind. Uh, <laughs> so, so how do they know where to go? Yeah, I mean, the, the classic thing about migratory animals, right, is that they need a compass and a map. And um, their compass is a what we call a time-compensated sun compass. Uh, they, they use the sun in the fall. At noon, the sun would, if they followed the sun, that would be south. Uh, but what they do is monarchs, like all other organisms, have a 24-hour clock. And in the morning, they keep... This, when the sun rises in the east, they keep the, the sun on one side as, as a means to fly south and in the afternoon on the other side. Um, and the experiments that, that folks did to demonstrate that are totally spectacular, right? You clock shift <laughs> the butterflies and then uh, see how they respond to sun in terms of where they keep it. That's the compass part. Hmm. Um, the map sense of monarchs is much uh, less well understood uh, it's not really clear how they know where to go specifically and where they are along the journey. Hmm. Um, so there's some hypotheses out there, but I'd hmm. say it's not really worked out. Hmm. So um, the bizarre, these are so absolutely amazing. And I'm a vertebrate biologist, so excuse my naivety, but um, how in the world do generations know to what, you know, sort of, did they know to what generation they belong? That's perplexed me since I was in high school and first heard about this. It just blows me away. Yeah, I would. I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe they don't need to know. Um, I think mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've thought a lot about with relation to the monarch's annual cycle is there are really predictable cues at different times of the year. And certainly the fall cues, uh, it's been well studied by, by Karen Oberhauser's lab that um, you know, cool nights, shorter day lengths, and the poor quality of milkweed in August and September, because it's the end of the season, triggers that southern migration. I suppose it's entirely possible that when they feed on Texas milkweed, there are associated um, predictable environmental factors that 
quote unquote tell them that you're in generation one and you should fly north. Hmm. Uh, in addition to you know temperature and, and other things, those things are reasonable, reasonably consistent year to year, I suppose. Hmm. All right. Okay. And is the this sort of multi generation migratory thing unique to monarchs, or is this something that a lot of butterflies and moths do? It's not unique to monarchs. Um, I'd say the you know it's I'd say it's to my knowledge not particularly common in the vertebrate world. In the vertebrate world, mm-hmm. individual birds or wildebeest might make the, the journey uh, many times themselves. Uh, in the insect world, my understanding is that um, there's different ways uh, animals do it. I think dragonflies, it was just discovered uh, really that many dragonflies migrate south, have one generation in Florida, and then the, that next generation flies all the way back north. Um, uh, I guess there are some return trip uh, moth migrators in Australia and some, uh, I think there's various flavors uh, of, of how the insects do it, yeah. The, the migrations, are the migrations unique to the U.S. or some of these other populations around the world migrants as well? In Australia, the monarchs migrate um, and it's, you know, it's great. It's different time of year, different direction uh, uh, and how they do it is a little bit, how they've adjusted is a little bit unclear. Um, mm-hmm. As far as we understand, um, you know, if I had to guess, if you took a, a population of monarchs from Australia and reared it for a generation late August in New York State, it would fly to Mexico. Uh, so my, the genetic evidence indicates that there's some population differentiation, of course, among these isolated populations around the world, but they're not, they're not that different. And there's, there's no strong evidence that migration has really been lost or uh, has evolved mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing in a lot of ways. I mean, it, says, it feels like it says something kind of general about the overall, I don't know, g- generality of the mechanisms that are that are driving this this migratory behavior. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> I agree. And you know, there's this, there's a classic study I think where you know, most lepidopter aren't thought to be migratory, but somebody put up a, a net in Florida. Uh, and in the fall, they caught most of the butterflies on the uh, the north side, and in the spring, they caught most of the butterflies on the south side, huh. suggesting that you know within Lepidoptera that we don't think of as being migratory, mm. there may <laughs> be kind of deep seated seasonal movements in the even just very locally, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. cool. Yeah. Huh. So um, is there anything – I'm intrigued by these few high-altitude fir forests in Mexico. Is there anything – what's special about these places? Why go so far for that very particular habitat? There's the physiological kind of answer, I mean, in the sense that um, monarchs come from a tropical lineage of insects that don't tolerate freezing. So um, – and, and in the spring and summer for us in in the U.S. and southern Canada, there are – incredible resources for them, the milkweeds that come up in the spring uh, and come up later and later further south, further north as they go. Um, so in a general sense, it appears that migration um, in the fall is an adaptation to the freezing temperatures. But then the obvious question arises, you know, why those places and what's um, special about them? And um, it, it appears that there's a very strong physiological match in terms of the conditions that are there at 10,000 feet of elevation uh, in these fir forests of Mexico 
with um, what would allow them to survive four months before the milkweed is again available in Texas. And you know, my understanding of that is it's that kind of mid-40s Fahrenheit temperature where um, at higher temperatures, they become more metabolically active and are burning that fat that they're storing all winter. So it's kind of and like self-refrigeration, basically. Ex yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, you, if it's too cold, then you're shivering and burning your stored energy uh, just to keep yourself kind of alive or physiologically active. Um, so the story that we tell, and there is, I mean, there's physiological data that's associated with this, is that it's the right temperature conditions that allow self-refrigeration for four months. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, there, and when that fails, there's spectacular consequences. You know, every 10 years or so, there's a big snowstorm at those high elevation sites. And um, there have been events where 70% of the monarchs will fall off of the trees and die. And you know, have ice crystals coming out of their, uh, or, you know, covering their bodies. Wow. And, um, so, you know, too cold definitely is too bad. <laughs> yeah. It is bad. And uh, it, it appears that um, in warmer winters, they'll spend more time flying around in Mexico as opposed to just huddled. But they primarily just have access to water. Mm. And then that r really lowers their fat reserves. Mm -hmm. Do we have any idea how long they've been doing this? I know we don't get too many insect fossils necessarily, but I mean, is this... Yeah, it's a little unclear. I mean, um, you know, um, I, I've looked into the historical uh, literature and um, it's a little hard to find. I mean, the earliest records I've been able to come, to, you know, the, there's a set of volumes um, of when the Spanish first um, uh, were in the, the New World and in Mexico, but... There's just some, you know, one or two line things in there about, uh, um, you know, hordes of orange butterflies. And you sort of think it could be monarchs, mm -hmm. but it could be many other mm -hmm. things. Um, I think looking deep into the past, deeper into the past, it's hard to know. I mean, the Pleistocene, during the Pleistocene, the last two million years, repeated glaciations in North America, um, I've tried to imagine what that meant for monarchs and monarch migration. And I, ha I don't have a, um, a particularly good answer. I'd like to watch the, yeah, the time-elapsed yeah, video. Were, were yeah, those sure. sites in Mexico glaciated during the last glacial maximum or not? Sir, I would guess not. Okay. I mean, yeah. um, I don't really mm -hmm. know, but yeah. I mean, I, but just in terms of everything kind of getting pushed further south, yeah. There's been discussion about monarchs listed as an endangered species. Yeah. What's the status of that discussion right now? That's my understanding. Yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Service was petitioned maybe in 2014, um, to list monarchs um, and uh, under the endangered as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, the monarch, what we know about its historical population dynamics is it's a, it's a very high fluctuation species. Um, and initially, when there was a lot of conservation concern raised about them, I wondered if we were just kind of in a bad spell. Just caught them at a low the, point. Yeah. 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 And and when you plot the data, unfortunately, um, you know, it's pretty convincing that there's a, been a downward spiral since uh, the early 1990s when uh, World Wildlife Fund started taking pretty consistent uh, good data in Mexico. So the worst years were 2010 to 2014. Uh, it corresponds with what was a 100-year drought in Texas and in northern Mexico which certainly affected their spring and southern fall migrations. 
Uh, in the spring, they're requiring their work, they're needing the milkweed, and in the fall, nectar sources. Um, since 2014, uh, the last five years or so uh, have been certainly higher population abundances than that all-time low, 2010 to 2014. Uh, I sort of feel like we're in the stabilized low range of monarch populations. In, in other words, it's still nowhere near um, you know, early 2000s or you know, late 1990s. Uh, populations, but um, we're kind of out of the red zone, at least for now. So, so is it the same um, story if you count populations in you know northern North America? It is not the same story. Um, we have uh, the North American Butterfly Association um, sends out, uh, or people, you know, citizen scientists are collecting data on monarch abundances through the summer, and they report them to the North American Butterfly Association. And at the very end of the summer, during the southern migration. There are several, um, we call them funnel points, uh, places where um, uh, land sticks out into large bodies of water, like at Cape May, New Jersey, or Peninsula Point uh, on the Great Lakes. Um, and people have been censusing monarchs there as long, and it does not appear that there is a 25-year decline uh, in the population abundances at the end of the summer. Huh. Super interesting. Uh, which suggests a paradox. Uh, they're declining when we count them in Mexico, uh, but not yeah. uh, not several months later. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, what um, do you think accounts for that mismatch? Well, you know, it, it, it's a it's it was part of a research project that we started and um, a few years ago, and, and will continue on. But um, we wanted to ask the question: Is um, is one of the data sets right and one wrong, um, or are they both right that uh, they're declining in Mexico and as far as we can tell, not declining at the um, beginning of the fall migration, and something is a, there's a disjunct in between. And I would, you know, in terms of our our, our best analyses, it appears that um, numbers continue to plummet at the overwintering sites in Mexico. They then build up each summer over those four generations, um, but the numbers. Be, you know, from the beginning of the southern migration to arriving in Mexico are down again. Hmm. Um, so that implies a problem with our, the southern migration, right? It implies a problem with the southern migration. That's right. Well, let's maybe circle around back to that problem in a little bit. Um, I, I want to sure. also talk about another idea for the decline of monarchs that um, you guys have written some about, and that's the, the so-called milkweed limitation hypothesis. And I think that's the idea that... Yep. Uh, you know, monarchs have declined because uh, there's just less milkweed available to them throughout their range because of agriculture and changes in land use and, and that sort of thing. So, so what's the status of that hypothesis? I think the status of that hypothesis is that it's, um, it's uh, still alive, um, but it's not kind of the dogma that it was maybe even five years ago. Hmm. Uh, I think five years ago there was some... Uh, alignment of um, scientific wisdom and appetite in the public uh, to that elevated the milkweed limitation hypothesis to be paradigm, and um, the analyses that have been done and have come out uh, since over the last five years have have ranged from yes, milkweed is limiting, um, but there are other things that are important also to um, the evidence for the milkweed limitation hypothesis is not very strong. Um, and is that evidence in part what you just said that the population numbers in northern North America are quite high 
And so it must not be yes. that there's too little to eat. Is that, is that essentially yeah, the logic? That, that's the logic. Uh, you know, we did a kind of a statistical input-output uh, set of analyses trying to track each stage, each generation. Uh, some of the logic has, you know, been based on um, uh, observations that monarchs are making it to fields and are laying eggs um, but there's a substantial amount of milkweed left in those fields. And I think, you know, there's potentially problems with that logic, but it, some of it's been based on observations. Um, some of it has been based on uh, other data that have emerged um, that have been published, but I'd say not widely discussed. And I don't exactly understand the reasons for this, but um, there's now relatively strong quantitative data that... Um, Protozoan parasite infections have increased from about 1% to 10%, quantitatively increasing over the last 18 years. Hmm. Um, another different analysis has shown that um, when citizen scientists bring uh, rear monarch butterflies, their uh, caterpillars, their sur the, the, the survival rate of monarch caterpillars has gone down over the last um, 15 years. And... Um, you know, in that case, it's not a matter of milkweed or not milkweed or whatever. It's just that the survival rate of things that are that caterpillars or eggs that are found mm. is decreasing. Um, What's the survival rate? What are these caterpillars dying from? Is that it's clear? not clear. Um, so I'd say okay. it could be you know infection. It could be pesticide residues. It could be um, other things that are unaccounted for. But um, um, you know. I think one of the wonderful things is that there was a lot of foresight over the last 20 to 25 years to start collecting, you know, data at a large scale and often involving citizen scientists. Mm. And um, that's proving to be quite important. Yeah. So some of the folks that have been doing the infection research, uh, Sonia Altizer's lab and, and others, um, I've, I've known them for a long time. We sort of run in the same research circles. Yeah. And if I'm remembering the story, and I'm not, so you're going to have to help, but um, a lot of that has to do with the growth of the infection of, of the parasite that they call OE. I'm not going to try to pronounce it exactly. at all. It's a, you know, it's a protozoan. I know you know well. Um, but, but it has something to do, as I recall, about non-native milkweeds, right, and how much more common they are now than they used to be. Yeah. And is there something about the quality of those plants for monarchs that's different than the natives? The, what what her lab and also uh, uh, Karen Oberhauser's lab have have come upon is that um, um, non-native milkweed. It's the tropical milkweed, Asclepias curassavica, sometimes called the Mexican milkweed. It's got a yellow and red flower, very easy to grow. It's sold as an annual in northern uh, climates, just as a garden plant, and it's feral in you know from Florida to Texas. Um, it. Um, Interestingly enough, it appears to be quite a toxic milkweed that monarchs like and benefit from in terms of uh, sequestering those toxins. The problem seems to be that um, uh, it's a plant that's so easy to grow and will keep flowering year after year that it tends to make monarch populations sedentary. They'll be flying south on their migration towards Mexico, and if they come to a large population or a, a, gar a large garden even of flowering tropical milkweed, they'll hang out there for a few days, drink the nectar, and then their reproductive organs will mature. They'll mate oh, no and they'll lay eggs. Huh. 
<laughs> and wow. the and I think this is known from again from many animals, vertebrates and others, is that sedentary populations, those that don't migrate, tend to have higher levels of disease. Um, mm-hmm. The process of migration uh, does a couple of different things, I think, to cleanse the population of disease. Um, so that's mm-hmm. I think that's the story there. Um, but the, you know, the other thing, which is, again, just really interesting, is that every summer, um, yeah, I think thousands of people, citizen scientists, are sending little scotch tape um, uh, imprints of monarch wings to Altizer's lab at the University of Georgia, and they count the number of these OE parasites. And so they have hundreds, I believe, from every year. And that's where that mm-hmm. statistic of the percentage infected has gone up incrementally from 1% to 10% over the last 18 years. It felt like we left the overwintering, overwintering or the fall migration both kind of untouched. Um, you know, we, we did talk a little yeah. bit about maybe the parasites are causing some populations to fall into this sink from no return. Either you're resident or you're dead. But um, what, what else might yes. be going on getting back to Mexico that could explain these lower populations? There? Yeah. Well, one of the, the, the paradoxes is that, um, believe it or not, the monarchs gain lipids uh, from the beginning of their southern migration to the end when they get to Mexico. So they're fattening up on and the way, huh? They're fattening up on the way. And, and Lincoln Brower, you know, he, um, he said, you know, drinking all that floral nectar, it's like drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> you pack some of that for energy, but then you, you use some of that for energy, but others of it you convert to fat. And it's quite clear that they need that fat storage for surviving the winter. So one hypothesis is that um, reductions in the amount of floral resources have reduce the amount of uh, lipid stores or lipid, basically sugar availability to both fuel and um, store over the winter. And um, the only real evidence we have, and I, I love the, the study, it was published last year in uh, PNAS, um, indicates that the greener falls are, and they use satellite imagery to, to get a greenness index of kind of rain and how green the foliage is, which likely correlates with how much floral resources and nectar there is, the greener the falls are, the uh, greater the ability of uh, the the abundance of monarchs that make it to Mexico uh, are. So there's some evidence that floral resources uh, are indeed important. Um, I think one of the big unknowns is um, uh, non-lethal impacts of of pesticides. Uh, And, you know, I'm not exclusive to thinking about neonicotinoids, but they're certainly on uh, the tips of a lot of tongues. Um, you know, of course, a big thing of the pesticides is they kill insects. And if they kill them, you can't count them. They're not there. But the other thing that we're just, you know, gaining more and more insight into is the uh, almost trace levels of uh, pesticides that don't kill the insect. You can still count it at the, end, at the beginning of the fall migration. But the, whether that's sickened or smaller or not able to make it to it's Mexico is another question. just not quite as question. good, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's some active work on that now, not, not in my lab, but at, at Purdue, uh, Ian Kaplan's lab and others trying to identify um, low levels of some of these pesticides and their impacts on monarchs and their migratory ability. Yeah, cool. Just, just one last idea about um, 
the overwintering sites. So the, these are these giant aggregations of many individuals in very close contact. And you would think it would yes. be quite the incubator for diseases. And so how, how big yeah. of a deal are, are diseases? Yeah, I don't. Um, the 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 OE protozoan uh, disease that we spoke about, um, it's uh, transmit. It has to be eaten as a caterpillar. Yeah, so it's not transmitted the, at the wintering it, site, right? It's not transmitted at the wintering okay. site. Uh, of course, in colonies, we get viruses and other things, but um, I don't have the sense that that's a big deal at the overwintering right. sites. Huh. Uh, there are two bird species and a couple of mice that certainly eat millions of <laughs> monarchs at the overwintering sites. Um, and they have a bunch of really interesting behaviors of cutting off wings and scooping out the guts from the inside. And, um, but you know, their impact is, certain, you know, is in the millions, not in the hundreds of millions, which is the right. number that really is the entire population. Right. Uh, so vertebrate biased, what, what are these species? Yeah, there's an oriole and a uh, grosbeak that are endemic to central Mexico, huh. um, and uh, I believe they're paramiscus. Among the mice, there's really only one mouse species that does a lot of damage, and I'd say it's a little unclear whether uh, they have adaptation, they have uh, that they're specialized in any way to the monarchs, or they've behaviorally uh, uh, learned the best means to eat the least toxic or the least bitter part of those bodies. Yeah, super interesting. So we've sort of opened the Pandora's box here of thinking about milkweed chemistry, uh, which, like many plant species, is wondrous and diverse. And uh, so, so tell us, tell us about cardiac glycosides and about latex and about this amazing interaction between monarchs and milkweeds. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> We're 10 hours on the bad natural history, so go for another 10. We're good. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think um, foxglove, which is not related to milkweed, it's in the plantain family or the plantagenaceae, has long been known to have uh, compounds that uh, were used to treat congestive heart failure in the certainly, certainly 1700s and earlier. And um, a, a naturalist and, and, and wonderful biologist, Miriam Rothschild, um, who was based in the UK in the 1950s, I don't know how she came upon this, but began to suspect that milkweeds had what she called digitalis-like properties. Um, and uh, she hypothesized that monarchs were getting their toxicity, the, the butterfly's toxicity. And it was known since certainly, um, uh, you know, uh, Wallace's time, Wallace knew about toxic butterflies, that um, uh, monarchs were toxic, and she hypothesized that they might be getting it from, from the milkweed plants. Um, to fast forward a bit, that seems that, that, that hypothesis was borne out. The milkweed plants produce these compounds we call cardiac glycosides. They're, they're poisonous to most animals, um, in part because they block a very essential um, cellular enzyme. And... Um, Monarchs have a relative immunity to that, and um, not only are they not as strongly negative imp impacted by those cardiac glycosides, they pack them away uh, as their own defense. Um, so that's kind of one of the major categories, and you mentioned latex. Um, that's another thing I could talk all day about. Uh, about 10% of all flowering plants, when you break their leaves or stems, will bleed a little or a lot of a white, sticky Elmer's glue-like substance. and I didn't um, realize the percentage was that high. Super huh, high, amazing. yeah. 
I mean, there's plants like dandelion where you don't really see it very much, but it's there. Yeah, but it's there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, figs and papayas, and it, it's evolved, you know, like 40 or more times. Um, and it's what gives milkweed. It's kind of that name, milkweed. Um, and uh, that is both a physical defense as well as a kind of concentrated goo of chemical toxins. So, um, and, it, and the way it works is pretty magical, right? The, it's these, uh, the latex is stored in these pressurized canals that flow throughout the plant. And so when the leaf is damaged, um, as it is when a caterpillar takes a bite or when you break the leaf, um, that pressure uh, causes an exudation or a emergence of that uh, latex substance. Um, uh, and it, it coagulates upon exposure to air in about a minute, so it's a, a, a gummy thing for the mouth parts. Um, and it also has the toxins. Um, and so uh, I can talk, if you'd like, about sort of how monarchs cope with that, or we can, yeah. Well, yeah, I'd love to know how the caterpillars deal with the gumminess. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's mostly a behavioral set of adaptations. Um, when the caterpillar hatches, and as you know, two or three millimeters long, what it first does is it, it cuts what we call a circle trench. It, it might spend an hour um, kind of picking away at little veins that are delivering that latex in a circle. Hmm. And um, it, they, you know, they might get a little latex on their head and wipe it on the side. And ultimately, you'll see like a little, uh, a little circle, about half a, half a centimeter in diameter, that has a kind of gluey ring around it. And then the caterpillar eats the island in the middle because they've cut all the veins that, were de that are delivering that latex um, from the sides. Uh, so they're going to spend their first hour sort of uh, establishing protection from this, this device. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Um, how, and, how often do they get stuck in it and, and die? Well, that's one of these unbelievable things. I mean, monarchs only eat milkweed. And I'd say that the, the data that we have is that you know, 30 to 40 percent of all caterpillars die on their first day of life mired in that latex. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> despite being you know, totally specialized in only doing this one thing, that one thing does pretty well uh, hmm. defending itself. You know, I've seen similarly high rates of mortality in a, a species that I've studied some, uh, Manduca sexta, which is a hawk moth caterpillar, yeah. and they eat these interesting plants in the genus Datura yeah. in the southwestern deserts. And some of the Daturas produce uh, a super sticky residue from the, the trichomes on their leaves. And we've seen very high rates of mortality in those those caterpillars. You know, sometimes it looks like I never quantified it, but ten or twenty percent of the hatchlings just wow. get all gummed up and and die. And they're taking uh, it's on their first day of life again. They're taking yeah. it's when they're smallest. Yeah. They're trying to take when their the smallest. First, yeah. They're super weak. Yeah. Marty, do you want to ask about the paper? No, this seems like good. Yeah, let's do that. So, um, wow, I don't even know how to, to start about this one. Let's circle, let's circle back and, and really talk more about the the chemistry in particular. 
and this amazing work that um, you collaborated. Uh, I guess it just came out Nature yep. uh, yesterday in Nature with um, I'm gonna. Could you correct my pronunciation if I get it wrong? Marianthe Karagiorgi? Yep. Uh-huh. She's the first author. Yeah. And uh, she's a, she's the first author in Noah Whiteman's lab, lots of other authors. Yep. And um, I mean, I just using CRISPR to transform, among other things, to transform a, a fruit fly into metabolically, at least, a uh, monarch butterfly. Can, can you explain to us what you guys did in this study? It's absolutely remarkable. Sure, definitely. Um, and and there's a set of history that goes with that. I mean, it's sort of, it's the culmination of uh, of a lot of work. And I, I'll tell you that story. I mean, um, uh, as early as 1992, um, a German lab um, headed by Michael Vink um, was trying to understand um, how monarchs were immune to cardiac glycosides. Uh, and actually goes back to the 1970s when a physiological work showed that you could dose cardiac glycosides or milkweed extracts on the brains of monarchs and they're not inhibited the way most other animals, including Manduca sexta, uh, are. So in 1992, it was confirmed that... Um, well, it was not confirmed. It was observed that there were some genetic substitutions in the genes for the sodium-potassium ATPase, or sodium pump, as we'll call it, um, that were hypothesized to be important in making monarchs immune to these cardiac glycosides. Uh, four years later, 96, the same group in Germany used cell culture and target site mutagenesis. And, and who knew that in 1996 they were changing single genetic base pairs uh, but they were, hmm. uh, and showed that there was a, um, a level of immunity to cardiac glycosides that was conferred by a single, in that case, genetic um, base pair change. Um, and I'll, I'll fast forward now to sort of the last few years, but um, w what happened over the intervening, you know, um, uh, 15 years or so is um, it was found that monarchs were not alone um, there were several other milkweed-feeding or digitalis-feeding insects that had the same genetic substitutions, and it was like a handful of two or three single you know, genetic mutations that were associated with um, feeding on these toxic cardiac glycoside-containing plants. So that in and of itself, I think, was like remarkable uh, evidence for convergent evolution or perhaps you might think of it even as constrained, that this sodium pump, all animal cells need it. And so if you're going to feed on a cardiac glycoside-containing mm -hmm. plant... This, this is what you have to do. Yeah. This is what you have to do. Um, and um, I, when that stuff was kind of all happening, um, I just kind of had a, the dream of taking this to a more ecological level by transforming or making... Uh, not cell cultures, but whole organisms that would have those same genetic substitutions. And um, just through conversations, uh, I had a sabbatical at the University of Arizona where uh, Noah Whiteman was at the time. Uh, I was collaborating with Susanna Dobler in Germany um, on how common these genetic substitutions were. Uh, we all got talking. Um, we wrote uh, uh, what I would consider a... a Somewhat goofy, but also um, uh, out there grant proposal to the Templeton Foundation, which tends to fund um, higher risk kinds of research, and uh, and they bought it. Um, they gave us a million dollars across the three labs, and um, 
the part that took the longest was the hardest part, which is the part that Noah Whiteman's lab led, which was um, to use CRISPR to um, edit uh, the sodium-potassium ATPase genes in the fruit flies, in Drosophila, um, with the same three single changes that monarchs have that have also appeared in a few of these other insects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to generate flies that basically, as you said, were, are metabolically like monarchs in terms of their resistance um, to cardiac glycosides. And we're just now, I think, beginning to dig into some of the even more interesting questions relating to to what extent is that the first step to uh, sequestration. First, you have to be able to tolerate the toxins. Right. How then do you go to packing it away in your wings? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Or the question of uh, if it's so easy with three substitutions to eat these plants, why isn't it more common? What are the costs and trade-offs associated with um, uh, having these three genetic substitutions? Mm-hmm. Right. That's amazing. Art and I beat up on, well, maybe me more, more so than Art, but we beat up on genetic determinism so much. Uh, it seems like every other episode. And so to see this extreme example of three mutations, that what was what was interesting, and maybe you could say something about the order and, you know, sort of underlying epistasis that's here. Yeah. It's not only not simple yeah, with the rate you of... You have to get the mutations in the right order. Gonna be. Yeah. It, has to, it has to be the perfect order. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, that, that, that's just... You know, you you can go with just three mutations in the right cocktail and end up with the ability. I think you said, or somewhere, maybe it was in the New York Times summary, that it was possible for those flies to feed on pure milkweed, or it was just sort of uh, pulverized milkweed. They went from, you know, dying from it to being able to live solely on it. And it it wasn't pure in the sense that it was, um, you know, an intact plant, but it was ground up leaves, Mm -hmm. you know, in the fly diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right. I would say, you know, I beat up on the genetic determinism in various ways also. And also, I, I don't like the uh, the notion um, of progress or a progression in evolution. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't, but as it turns out, at least for the, for the Danaean butterflies, um, the milkweed butterfly lineage, um, their basal or, or ancestral condition is not to be resistant to cardiac glycosides. And then there's a, an intermediate step and a final step that is progressive, and I and it, I I feel mm-hmm. like I it's just downright it, irritating, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, so I want to circle back to this idea of sequestration, um, and, yes. and maybe let's talk about that in, in monarchs in a minute. But do, do the flies that you engineered do they sequester the stuff now, or is that a separate set of processes? Uh, the flies that we reared on diets that had cardiac glycosides did in fact uh, have uh, small levels of cardiac glycosides in the adult form. So they were fed it as a larva. And I believe like all insects that undergo metamorphosis, they empty their gut before uh, they undergo metamorphosis. So it's not residual stuff left in their, in their stomach. They then undergo that wonderful transformation from grub to, to fly. They emerge and we still find cardiac glycosides in their adult body. Mm-hmm. So that's that's our definition of sequestration. Have you guys looked um, to see whether that provides any uh, protection to the flies against predators, sort of incipient? We have not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think we need to do more work just on um, – one of the things I've started to do uh, in a much more natural context is we have a few generalist insects that uh, you know, don't sequester, but that uh, we can get to feed on milkweed. We can get cabbage loopers uh, to feed on milkweed foliage as long as it's cut off of the leaf. They don't like the latex 
we can get Colorado potato beetles to eat milkweed uh, leaves. And we're looking at how much uh, cardiac glycoside ends up in their adult bodies as kind of like a, a, a passive benchmark. You know, for an insect that was never, shares no evolutionary history with this toxic plant, um, do we expect some small amount to just passively end up in the adults if the caterpillar or larva has fed on it? Um, and I think that'll be really nice to compare to the fruit flies uh, as well that um, uh, are in the same boat, but they also have this immunity to yeah. ask whether um, that's about the same level or uh, and what the next steps are. Yeah. In the in the flies, did you were you able to look into the different tissues? Is it is it disproportionately one place or the other, or is that still to come? Still to come. We have not done that. Yeah. Okay. In monarch butterflies, okay. they are most concentrated in the wings, um, mm -hmm. and that kind of follows the kind of the rules of sequestration. You want it away from your main organs, and as mm -hmm. as close mm -hmm. to where a bird might peck you and not kill you. Um, mm -hmm. But that would be the question of where it is in the flies is a, is a really interesting yeah. one. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the monarch sequestration a little bit. Um, so, so what what does that protect them against? And uh, you know, I, I like many people have seen these iconic photos that I think Lincoln Brower took of you know the naive blue jay that eats a monarch and then a few minutes later vomits the whole thing up. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and so is this you know does it work against all vertebrate predators? Um, it seems that it's certainly most targeted at vertebrates or most effective at vertebrates. Um, I think there's some evidence for lizards and birds. Um, uh, there are important mice predators of monarchs, but I'm, I don't know if there's ever been a, uh, a link between the coloration and predation. They care about cardiac glycosides, the mice. Um, they'll eat the males more than the females because the males have less cardiac glycosides. They won't eat the wings. Hmm. Um, but I don't know if the aposematism, that strong coloration, uh, plays any role with the mice. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I will say that there's basically no evidence that that stuff is effective against invertebrate predators, huh. spiders, stink bugs, Interesting. other things. And let's maybe talk just for a minute about the, the evolutionary dynamics of, of how you evolve that sort of thing too, right? Because, you know, it, in some sense, it's a mystery because any individual that gets attacked by a bird is almost certainly going to be dead, right? And so its defenses <laughs> don't do it any good. So how does something like that evolve? Well, you guys ask the hard questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> I guess I would say if, if, if part of the rules of sequestration are away from your internal organs, mostly so you don't poison yourself, and put it um, uh, as external as you can such that you may survive the predator attack, um, then maybe we don't have to go that deep into your, uh, okay. your question. It's, it's not a sure death. Um, yeah. It's not a sure death. And I, you know, certainly by the time monarch butterflies are migrating back to Texas, uh, we frequently see uh, bird peck marks on their wings, but they're still making it back to Texas. I see. Um, but there is a whole learning side to uh, the sequestration that requires more complicated evolutionary explanations because at the individual level, like you say, uh, if they die, yeah.
Well, so if we just kind of step back and ask you to get out your crystal ball and look into the future, what what do you feel about the prospects for monarchs over the over the long term? The good news is the monarchs aren't going anywhere. I mean, I, I don't usually like to say this um, publicly, but here I go. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> monarch butterflies are a weedy, uh, a weedy animal species. Um, they. Uh, their native range is uh, eastern North America. There's another native population in um, on the west coast in California. But they have self-sustaining introduced populations in Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, yeah, Spain, throughout the world, northern really, Africa. Yeah. yeah. Where milkweed has been introduced as a ornamental, eventually monarchs blow across the oceans and colonize. And so as a species, I don't think anybody is arguing um, uh, that the species is in trouble or is going, going to go extinct. Um, the more nuanced discussion is uh, about what's wrong with the annual migratory cycle, both in the east, uh, eastern U.S. and in the western U.S., which uh, are undergoing long-term declines, um, and uh, what can be done about that. And I mean, as far as I understand... Uh, my crystal ball would say the eastern migration and the western migration are going to continue, no question. Um, but whether it's as spectacular as it is or whether it's kind of broken in some way, uh, I think are the more um, uh, important questions. And certainly if if we have years like 2010 to 2014, um, uh, several consecutive years, I think we really begin to worry, as I did, about are there enough monarchs um, to – colonize the north in the spring, do they, if they really benefit from being in large aggregations at particular times of their life cycle, are there going to be enough to maintain those to have any positive effects of density? Um, and um, unfortunately, you know, I, I love monarchs, of course, and I you know, think they're an awesome species. I've devoted so much of my professional life to them. But um, I don't think they're, they are the thing to worry about or to um, or to try to save or throw money at. The real question is, is what are they telling us about the environmental health of our continent? Mm. Um, they're, I mean, they're, they're wonderful because they're migrators and they taste their way as they go from Canada to Mexico. The fact that they're declining is, is you know, shouting out, hey. Something's um, going on continent-wide. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, <laughs> That's, I think, the tougher uh, uh, question and pill to swallow. And when we start thinking about migratory bird populations showing similar declines, you know, that's one of the things that's that's said to me. Uh, don't worry about milkweed. I mean, migratory birds, if they're showing correlated declines with monarchs, that's telling us about a large-scale problem, not the specific food that one particular um, organism is eating. So. Um, uh, but those are tougher questions because there's not you can't um, plant a garden and fix that. Huh. Um. <laughs> so do you think that? Um, I mean, that was interesting to hear uh, that you th see, think of monarchs as weedy species. It's, and for those of us that also study weedy species, it's encouraging to hear. But that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think that there's something about the monarch though that can make it, uh, you know, a useful flagship because of its its complex life history and, and you know what that means for other organisms? Is it, maybe if you have an example, or if your answer is yes to that, if it has anything to do with what, how we might use it for understanding climate change effects on migration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it has a, 
useful function as an iconic species, uh, both perhaps mostly because uh, the public, non-scientists are interested. Um, uh, monarchs are in their backyards that people can relate to them. They rear them. And so I think for, as a conservation tool, very important. Um, and uh, certainly uh, with relation to impacts of climate change, um, the fact that it's a migratory species that um, needs particular temperature conditions to overwinter. Uh, they're at tree line in Mexico. So uh, the predictions are uh, in order for them to maintain the same thermal regimes, they'd have to move up um, in the mountains. But there aren't trees. There's not a lot of soil moving up, and mm-hmm. you can't move that far up. And so, yeah, absolutely. Of course, they have a lot to teach us. And um, uh, uh, and the fact that people care about them, I think, makes them uh, especially good as uh, a flagship species. Yeah. I think it's a good spot to ask about uh, citizen science, which is something that you and others have used a lot in in your studies of monarchs. Um, so maybe just briefly, you know, what 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 is citizen science altogether, and how useful do you think it'll be going forward for tackling some of these big conservation problems? Yeah, citizen science uh, uh, is the collection of data about uh, organisms. Um, I guess a citizen science in biology or in ecology um, by non-scientists that uh, is ultimately used to address some scientific question or hypothesis. Um, monarchs play a really prominent role in the history of citizen science in that, I, as I understand it, it was really the first kind of big question in biology uh, that was answered uh, by and large uh, uh, by the help of citizen scientists. So uh, Fred and Nora Urquhart, who are at the University of Toronto in the 1940s, um, started a tagging program. And their question was, where do these organisms go in the winter and what do they do? Um, and it took them you know, 35 years. <laughs> but in 1975, with an army of thousands of citizen scientists, um, they found out where the overwintering sites are and what, what happened in the winter. Um, so uh, there are many, many other kinds of citizen science projects, whether it might be uh, following populations, uh, the ups and downs of populations, or um, uh, you know, the, the engagement of citizen scientists in bird biology through things like eBird here at the, at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology um, have been tremendous um, to address questions relating to where the organisms are as it relates to climate change or, or other things. Um, I think there's a real important and strong role uh, for citizen science in um, addressing questions that either single investigators or even teams of scientists can't address. Um, And it has the added benefit of really connecting um, people that just love the organisms to uh, real change or real information that can help, whether it's conservation or understanding something uh, new about them. Mm -hmm. So... um, what are the citizen yeah. science projects that are going on right now for monarchs, for listeners to get involved? Yeah, well, there's many. Um, and I think just Googling something like uh, monarch citizen science, there's web pages devoted to the mm-hmm. different kinds of projects. Uh, there certainly is continued monitoring of, uh, uh, well, of butterflies by the North American Butterfly Association. And anybody can, contrib- can contribute to that. Uh, the I think one of the biggest advances and, and, and kind of new things has been uh, the Monarch uh, Larval Monitoring Project, um, LM, 
well, MLMP. <laughs> that, um, we'll link to it on our I website. It, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if it's still run out of the University of Minnesota, but it was uh, headed by Karen Oberhauser. Um, and that, you know, it's now 20 years old, but I think that has added a whole new level of, um, of information to understanding monarch populations because, um, you know, we can count the number of adults, but understanding what's happening to the larvae uh, is, is equally important. And um, like so many insects, you know, 90, 90 odd percent of them are going to be eaten by predators or die in some other way. And um, I think the Monarch Larval Monitoring Project is beginning to shed light on um, other important sources of mortality um, at the at the earlier life stage before they become butterflies. Uh, and that is occurring, uh, I think, all across North America. Hmm. Cool. Easy to get involved. So let's just wrap up by uh, asking you a, f a few more forward-looking questions. So, you know, uh, in terms of your own lab's efforts and your, you know, your own personal efforts, what are you going to be working on in Monarchs in the next five or ten years? And what do you think is going to be possible then that's not possible now? I, you know, being an academic, I've allowed myself to um, kind of take advantage of the whimsical nature of uh, academic inquiry and um, to follow my nose, in other words. And mm -hmm. I'd say um, I was never trained in chemistry, but I've gotten more and more interested in the, the details of the chemistry of the monarch-milkweed interaction. Um, so uh, it's very easy, and people like to bin... Um, species that interact like this as, well, the monarch has won the coevolutionary battle. It's immune to the cardiac glycosides. Well, that's not exactly <laughs> true. Um, if it's coevolution, if they're really uh, evolving in response to each other, we would predict that there are some compounds or toxins that the plants are making that um, are, in fact, really hard for the monarchs. And so we're digging into that chemistry um, in a way that I never thought I would uh, 10 years ago, and it, and it certainly will be a 10-year project moving forward. Um, I would like to engage uh, more with uh, um, the genetically transformed uh, Drosophila lines that, um, that we've developed for that paper that we talked about. Uh, I think there's a lot more kind of ecology to be done now that we have um, living organisms, uh, flies, that... Um, uh, uh, are very much like monarchs, but they're not. So we know uh, how we've changed them, and we can ask, we can push them to their limits and ask them questions uh, to, to teach us more. Um, now, the last thing I'll say, I guess, is, you know, I, I see monarchs and milkweed as, as two species, and the milkweed uh, system as like a, a microcosm. There's monarchs, but then there's these ten other insect species uh, that feed on milkweeds, and and it's. The similarities and differences in them are really interesting, and I think they have the potential to teach us about some general rules in biology. Um, most of the insects that feed on milkweed are brightly colored and, um, uh, and aposomatic, and, um, but not all of them. There's one or two exceptions. Um, most of them bring in these toxins into their bodies, but not all of them. Um, most of them... Um, uh, uh, cut those uh, latex canals, and that's how they deal with that flowing up. But, well, we have one exception to that. So for me, 
you know, life in biology is like this bouncing back and forth between finding, looking for the generalities. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes these things all simple? And then thinking, oh, but there's this exception. And what does that teach us? (laughs) And so, um, and that's just monarchs, that's just milkweeds and their insects. And then you try to generalize from there, of course, across something broader. So, um, well, Hmm. it sounds like a glorious 10 years. So (laughs) (laughs) you've got a lot to do. The decline of monarchs has attracted a lot of attention, and researchers like Anarag have channeled that enthusiasm into collaborations with the general public. The Monarch Larva Monitoring Project at the University of Minnesota encourages non-scientists to count caterpillars on milkweed plants in public parks, workplaces, and schools. Another program called Monarch Watch grew out of Fred and Nora Urquhart's quest to find the overwintering grounds of monarch butterflies. That project distributes tags to the public to mark butterflies and track their movements. The Project Journey North is designed for K-12 students. In that program, students take field observations of migrating insects, but also whales and birds, and report their findings online. We'll post links to these projects on our website so that you can participate. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Michael Dickinson, a biologist at Caltech, who discovered the basics of how insects fly. He built a giant robotic insect to understand how air interacts with insect wings. After that, we talk with Rosemary and Peter Grant, who provided some of the strongest evidence so far supporting evolution by natural selection in the wild. We'll talk with them about their research on Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Islands and their thoughts about the future of evolutionary theory. We have a lot of great interviews coming up in October, and we need your help coming up with good questions for our guests. If you're a patron, please send us your questions from Michael and the Grants to info at bigbiology.org. And if you're not a patron, go to patreon.com bigbio and start supporting the show. Join now and send us your questions. Thanks to Matt Boyce for producing this episode. Haley Hansen, Chloe Ramsey, Sarah Gazinski, and Lexi Souser manage our social media channels. Michael Levine helps with social media and Patreon. As always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear. 